0: All right, we come back to Hebrews chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, please find your way there. And we want to say this kind of marks a transition from the first four opening verses. I mean, they're really building toward this. Pink said that if you understand these first four verses, then you have the whole letter, really, in, in essence. The letter expounds upon those points, but those are the key points. And so last week we saw that The author transitions through this to come to this point at the end, verse 4, that Christ has become so much better than the angels. Now he's built upon a lot of ideas here, hasn't he, along the way, that this is God's authoritative Son, whom He's speaking to in these final days. And that contrasts against the prophets in the former days, who spoke to our fathers in many ways and parts, but fully and finally in this Son. And much more is said. He's appointed heir of all things. He's the one through whom God also made the worlds, the universe. He's the brightness of His glory, the express image of His person, the imprinting of His substance. He upholds all things by the word of His power. And when He would by Himself purged our sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. And it's in reference to that that He says, having become so much better than the angels. As he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. All right, so those are some key points, a glorious list. This Christ has become greater than the angels. We tried to expound that last Sunday because, again, you could read into that some heresy if you weren't careful, couldn't you? It's not there, but I mean, you'd have to put it in. But people have done just that. They've said, well, see, Christ is a created being. God made him, and he made him greater than the angels. That's not what it says. We spoke last week about this mission that Christ came on in which he was made lower than the angels for a time. I heard a a preacher this past week who said the angels are kind of like the dividing line. Above them sits God alone. Below them, humanity. And so to say that God in Christ, Christ became lower than the angels speaks of his humiliation. And there's a question in many of our catechisms. What this means to say Christ was humiliated. He came into the world, born in human flesh, under the law, all these various ways. was obedient to death, yes, even the death of the cross. And as we spoke before looking at that parallel passage, it says, because of what He accomplished there, He's been highly exalted by His Father, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So again, we see this text and this idea throughout the Scriptures. It's in this that we can say of Christ in His humanity. Again, can't separate them. right? They are united in Christ Jesus, His divine nature and human nature. But we can distinguish a little bit. We're distinguishing now on His human nature. He has been highly exalted by what He accomplished. What He alone could accomplish in coming into the world taking on this tent of flesh, living obedient to the law of God, perfectly, without sin, becoming obedient to death, yes, even the death of the cross, rising victoriously, being uh, raised, ascended to heaven to sit at the right hand of the majesty on high. He has been highly exalted. His name is above every name. So necessarily, it's higher than the name of the angels. He is greater than the angels. Now again, we would point out that in one sense we tried to look at last week, In His divinity, He's just right back to where He was, right? I mean, He was always God. He's always been God. We're not speaking now that He's become greater in His divinity, but in His humanity. He has been highly exalted to take His seat as the Davidic king, the Son of God, at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, are these things complicated to talk about? Yes. Very complicated to talk about. Why should we expect that they wouldn't be? Right? We are finite human beings. We're speaking of the infinite God who created all things. It's going to be difficult. I quoted, I tried my best not to quote it last week. I'll blaze Pascal about the, the dog and higher math because I thought they're tired of hearing it. But I try to come back to that because it's a good point. Right, There are certain things that are stretching us beyond our bounds. And we have to recognize that. We'll come back to that again a little bit later. But again, this fifth verse is our focus today, and it lays out an argument, an exposition based on what he said last week. He made the claim, the author of Hebrews, that Christ has become so much better than the angels and has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Now, as we go through the rest of this chapter over the next few weeks, we're going to see that he exposits that idea and backs it up with seven references to the Old Testament Scriptures. Five of those are to the Psalms. The Psalms are incredibly important to understanding not only the theology of Hebrews but the theology of the Bible. In fact I think it wasn't that long ago I heard Steve Lawson say if you really want to know the Bible become familiar with four books in the New Testament, the Gospel of John, Letter to the Romans, Hebrews, and in the Old Testament Psalms. He said if you've got a grasp of those four books then you've got a pretty good grasp of biblical theology. Now the Psalms are going to lead you elsewhere, right? The Psalms are going to lead you, as will Hebrews, as will John's Gospel, right? And as will Romans. They will lead you back to the Torah and the history books and the prophets. They will lead you everywhere. So if you master those books, then you'll see the fullness of the argument, although there's, I guess I shouldn't say the fullness, you'll see a large percentage of the argument in biblical theology. But there's always more there. There's always more to study and to read, and we praise the Lord for that. I've thought about this often. I've probably mentioned it from this pulpit before, but when you think about the richness of the Scriptures, you can think about someone like a Donald Guthrie who has devoted his entire academic career as a seminary professor to the letter to the Hebrews. He writes on it, studies it, writes articles, teaches on it, and yet he's constantly like, oh, I saw something I'd never seen before, right? And, and oftentimes it's not in the text of Hebrews, but it's in the text that Hebrews refers to. And you see a new little part there. Or you read some other scholar, Augustine or someone who points out something that you had never seen before. Again, it's amazing how the Word of God is never exhausted by our studies. And uh, we thank the Lord for that. Although there are times where that level of challenge also is a little frustrating as we're trying to grasp these ideas. But again, we want to look at this. So he's going to lay out this argument, five quotations from the Psalms. We'll see a quotation today from the history books. There's also a quotation from Isaiah in here, but we'll see these over the next several weeks. And they're building the argument. Christ is greater than the angels. No debate about it. The Bible does not leave you any place of argumentation on the opposite side. You're not going to have a good scriptural basis to say, no, I disagree. I think we can make an argument that the angels are greater than Christ. No. And he's going to make that clear. And he's going to begin today with verse 5 as we come to a quote from the Psalms and from 2 Samuel. And so we want to look at what he's going to try to say in these two scriptures, what he is arguing effectively. And uh, we want to look at the purpose of what he's telling us, that there is something unique about Christ that can be said of him and no one else. There is none like him. And that's going to bring us to a word that's very important that we've been talking about, or I mentioned it last week, but it's a word we need to think about, Uh, monogenes. It's a word that pops up in, in the scriptures and what it means. There's debate over this. Both interpretations, one and only unique son, is true of Christ. But there is a sense in which we don't want to lose what monogenes has always been interpreted to mean, which is only begotten son. There's a theological import to that which we'll speak about briefly. Only briefly because that's all we can speak about it. We've got to be very careful where we tread on some of this ground. So I'm going to go back and read now the text, but I'm only going to read the first five verses. And then we're going to get into it. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last or final days spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, Through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? And again, I will be to him a father. And he shall be to me a son. As we look at this fifth verse in Hebrews chapter 1, I want us to look at two points. First of all, David's promised greater son. And second, God's only begotten son. And we're going to begin first with this idea of David's promised greater son. As we do this, we're trying to build the exposition of the text, but I'm going to ask that you bear with me as we do it in reverse order. We're going to look at the second quote first. As we get ready to turn to second, Samuel chapter 7, and you can go ahead and turn there if you'd like, and we'll be speaking here just for a second, we need to ask the question, what is the question that the author of Hebrews is wanting us to consider? Well, the primary question is, how are we to argue that Christ is unquestionably greater than the angels? He's already established that he has a greater name, but he needs to explain what he means by that. What does he mean that he has inherited a much more glorious a more excellent name than the angels and how are we to understand that we're going to say that he's become so much better than the angels greater than the angels how is he going to make this argument and he begins to build this argument today in verse 5 with a question and that question is for to which of the angels did he ever say this and then he's going to give us two quotes from the old testament we're going to look First at, the second one. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now the question is, to which of the angels did God the Father ever refer to that angel, particular angel, as a son? Now the answer is none. To no angel did he ever call his son. We want to immediately deal with an objection because someone might say, wait a minute. Aren't there texts in the Old Testament that refer to the angels collectively as the sons of God? Yes, there are. You can turn to a couple of references like that in uh, Genesis chapter 6, and there's four more references like that in the book of Job. So the angels are collectively referred to as sons of God. But that's not what the author's talking about here. Any more than uh, you could ask the same question. Does he mean the same meaning when he says in Romans 8, that as many as have the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. No, that doesn't conflict with what he's getting at here, which is there is one to whom he speaks and he calls him the singular Son of God. We come now not to a general use, but a specific use of Son of God. The singular title. The Scriptures point to this, that there is only one to whom this has ever been referred. Now maybe in the Old Testament you were confused as to who it is. Maybe you weren't, but there's only one. And so we want to look at it. So let's turn back, if you haven't already, to 2 Samuel, chapter 7. And as you're turning there, this is a text that is familiar to us. Uh, we looked at it this past Christmas season. Now we didn't look at 2 Samuel, we looked at the First Chronicles uh, parallel passage. But it's the same history being told to us. David is ruling from Jerusalem. And all is going well. In fact, if you look at just the first verse of the chapter, what does it say? Now it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around. In other words, David is living very comfortably in his palace and there is no threat now of war. Now that is a... If you're a king especially in the ancient world where war was just a, a daily fact of life you're sitting here thinking this is pretty nice right we are at rest from all the struggles that it took to secure this capital city by God's grace we're at rest what is the first thing that David's mind is turned to how can I exalt myself how can I add pleasure upon pleasure to myself no no David's first thought is actually the Ark of the Covenant. He thinks now that we're in Jerusalem, shouldn't the Ark of the Covenant that represents the very presence of God amongst His people, should it not be here? Let's go get it. Now David, bold, faithful, loved the Lord, zealous, not always thinking before He acts, right? And so again here. In fact, the few times that you can look and see David get into trouble, he sometimes gets out in front of himself and doesn't slow down and think about what he's doing. Here it is again. He goes out. They go to get the ark. You know the story. They haven't prepared. They haven't searched the scriptures. Uh, they throw it up on a, on a cart and it's unsteady. And Uzzah reaches out to touch it and dead. Dead. My friends, a sinful man touched the glory the presence of God there was no way he was to live and they had been warned this there were procedures for how you carried the ark involving poles and nobody touching it and nobody had spent the time to make sure they did it right we could stand here today on how important this message is your zeal and passion does not mean that you get to ignore what the word of God says If Christians could hear that today, it would take them a lot further in their walk because their motivations were good and their hearts were in the right place and they wanted the presence of God in the center place of the people of God and yet still if you touch that ark, you're going to drop dead. It doesn't matter once the temple was built that you go, I just want to be in the presence of God. You're not the high priest. It's not Yom Kippur. I don't care. God won't mind. He really cares that my heart just wants to be in His presence. Well, let's see how that turns out for you. You're not going to show your love of God by disobeying Him. So again, this is a message we need to hear today in the church. But again, David's heart is in the right place. He is afraid after this happens, as all of Israel is. They go back, they search, they figure out how to do this. And then they make it right. And when they do, there is a worship service in Jerusalem. That was our Thanksgiving sermon last year, that passage. And then we immediately went in the next week for the first week of Christmas into what comes next in the story. Now, again, that was in Chronicles. We're looking uh, at Samuel. And I think I mentioned this in that sermon. And certainly if you want to look at this more in depth, those sermons are online. You can go to our website, Sermon Audio, wherever you'd like to. If you've got time this week, and listen to them again. The reason I like the Chronicles passage is it tells us something important. Because this is a book written after the return from the exile. The Chronicles histories are. And they're still holding on to the promise that God has promised a future king. So let's look at it. Chapter 7. We're going to read the first 17 verses. We're going to walk through them. Now it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house, comfortable, and the Lord had given him rest from all the enemies around, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark dwells inside tent curtains. Now, cedar was luxurious, right? I don't know what it would be for us today, mahogany or or oak or whatever it would be that we would say is a nice appointed uh, den or whatever you'd want to say. David says, I've got a paneled house. It's nice. But I see that the Lord, the ark of God, dwells in tent curtains, the tabernacle. Nathan doesn't have to ask him, what do you have in mind? Nathan can understand what's on this man's heart. He says, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. That's a reasonable thing to think. Nathan didn't think, I need to check with the Lord. He just thought... Like David did, this is a good, intentioned idea. It's a good idea. Do it. Why should you, O King David, live in such a nicely appointed house when the king of all glory is said to be sitting in a tent? He's saying, it's not right that you should live in such a finely appointed palace and God reside in a tent. That's, that's not right. So Nathan's like, I agree with you. Do something about it. If if this is on your heart, go. Again, another example of zeal, good intentions, good ideas, nobody seeking God's will. It happened that very night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, Go and tell my servant David. Thus says the Lord, would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I, was, that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, and have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Now, I want to park here just for one second before we move forward. It's amazing here if you think about what the Lord is saying. First of all, I never requested this, right? Never instructed you to do it. But even then, I think there's a there's a rebuke here in the language that God is using. He's saying... Don't forget this tent that I appointed for my own use, that I told you all to make for me, that it's that same tent, that same dwelling place, has been what I was brought up from Egypt when I brought you out of Egypt. You didn't bring yourself out of Egypt. You didn't bring yourself out of captivity. I brought you out of captivity. I think the Lord is trying to just emphasize here and hammer into them who is in charge? Who is sovereign here? Who is the one directing things? He says, "Whenever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, "Why have you not built for me a house of cedar?" God saying, "I didn't command this. I didn't request this. I've given commands. I've done amazingly powerful things by my mighty arm, and I never asked for this. Now listen to this, verse 8. Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold and from following the sheep to be a ruler over my people, over Israel, and wherever you have gone, wherever you have been, uh, and wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you and have made you a great name like the name of the great men who were on the earth. Now, park here again for just one second. Do you see again the perspective that God is trying to give to David here? Who's in charge here, David? You, you think I'm in a humble beginnings and you're going to take me out of those humble beginnings? I took you out of humble beginnings. You were a mere shepherd in a field. I took you out and made you king over all of Israel. I don't need your help, David. You need my help. Now that is in the background of what he's saying here, and he's about to prove it. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any longer as previously. Since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies, also the Lord tells you that He will make you a house. Now there's an ironic flip for you, right? This whole passage begins with David wanting to build a house for God. And God says, no. No, David, you're missing the story here. I'm building you a house. And the author of Hebrews is going to park this entire argument on this very thing that there is a descendant of David, an heir of David. Now, this doesn't tell us a whole lot so far about that heir, but let's continue. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your father, so in other words, when you die, David, I will set up your seat after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Now, if we stopped right there, if we stopped right there, we would say, okay, this is Solomon. This is Solomon. He's talking about the one who will come after David. In fact, if you continue on, he shall build a house for my name. Again, if we stop right there, we say this is Solomon. But let's see how well Solomon stacks up if we continue. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. We've read the Old Testament. It didn't go so well for Solomon in the end, did it? You saw a divided kingdom come after that. It seemed like... If you didn't have faith in the promises of God, you'd say it's all over. Somehow it was lost. In fact, the great thing about the Chronicles are, as they come back into the land, they don't have any sign that God is doing this, and yet they still believe that He is. God has made a promise. He will keep His promise. My friends, faith is at the heart of the argument of the letter to the Hebrews. Even when you can't reconcile in your mind how God will do it, He has said it. He will do it. That's faith. It says of Abraham when God asked him to sacrifice this son of promise, Isaac. You know, in Genesis we read that he he goes to Mount Moriah. He's going to go through with it until the Lord stops him. No explanation of what's in Abraham's mind is given to us in Genesis. And yet, in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews tells us that he was so certain of the promises of God that he said, God said, through this son... Shall the promise come, therefore, if I drive this dagger into him, God will necessarily raise him from the dead. Think about that faith. Think about that faith. Well, my friends, here's a promise. And God says, "I will be His father, and he shall be my son," the very text quoted in Hebrews. "If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the Son of men." Now we can continue on. He says that His mercy will not depart as it did from Saul. But I want us to to stay focused here for just a moment on this promise. Here is a promise to the son of David. A Davidic son. A king who will come from the line of David. A son of David. And yet God says, I will be unto him a father and he will be unto me a son. He will be my son and I will establish his throne, the throne of his kingdom forevermore. Again, that's not Solomon. Well, who is it? Well, as we come to the text, we're going to have to wrestle with that, aren't we? The author of Hebrews says, wrestle with it. The promises of a messianic king who will come after David, whose rule and reign will last forever, and it's established on the perfect word and promise of God. That's a promise that was believed and recognized immediately that this is speaking of the Messiah. Whatever else we can say about him, this is the Messiah, the one who will come. This is who it's speaking of here. And they held on to that promise. Now they recognized, that means much later when the Chronicles were written, they recognized what's recognized here. That He has not yet come, but He's coming. God has promised He is coming. There will be a glorious fulfillment of this amazing promise. The Messiah will come to reign on David's throne forevermore. And that amazing point and all the astounding theology that surrounds it should have made the scholars of the Old Testament take note, stand up and take notice. There's some clues that are given here that should get our attention. For of this one it's said that He will reign forevermore. And yet it seems that they couldn't reconcile these things. They couldn't figure them out. You know, there are other places that they could have gone that that should have alerted them Uh, That something unique about this promise is given to us. Psalm 110, a frequently cited psalm, in fact the most cited psalm of the New Testament, has a quote there, doesn't it? Psalm 110 says, the Lord, now this is from, from David's perspective, right? The Lord God says to my Lord, the Messiah, right? Sit on your throne until I make your enemies your footstool. Now think about this for a minute. The Lord, God Almighty, says to my Lord, the Messiah. Now, again, that's strange wording, isn't it? Strange wording that the Lord would say to the son of David, or excuse me, that David would say to his own descendant that he would call him Lord. You may remember that in Matthew chapter 22, there's parallel passages here in uh, Mark also. We've looked at that before. But in Matthew 22, Jesus asks a question about this, doesn't he? If you take a second to turn to Matthew 22 and go to verse 46, you'll see it here. Excuse me, The, the passage starts at 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, Now, this is in the context they've been trying to trip him up all along and have been unable to. So he's got a question to see if they can answer. It's not a trick question. It's just how do you rightly interpret the Word of God? Here it is. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Now this is chapter 22, verse 41. Now we're to 42. What do you think about the Christ? Jesus asked these Pharisees, what do you think about Him? Whose son is He? Now they said to Him, the son of David. They could have rightfully said, based on what Jews understood, obviously, He's the son of David. Like all Jews knew this, all Jews accepted this, all Jews believed this, all Jews proclaimed this, the Messiah will be the son and descendant of David. So Jesus said to them, how then does David in the Spirit, notice this, David's not in error when he says this. Jesus wants to get that distinction very clear. This is in the scriptures. By the Spirit, David says, or calls, his own descendant, Lord. Let me go ahead and lay this groundwork. I've laid it before. It's very quick. In the letter to the Hebrews, there are rabbinical arguments that you have to come to terms with. A descendant cannot be greater than his father because he is in the loins of his father. This is the way uh, the Jews reckoned things. It's going to be a very important argument on why the priesthood of Melchizedek is greater than that of Levi because Levi when he was still in Abraham's loins tithed to Melchizedek recognizing Melchizedek was greater than himself. So in other words Levi through Abraham testifies that Melchizedek's ministry is greater. Kind of a way we don't usually think, but it is the biblical logic. And in the same way, David's descendant cannot be greater than David. He is from David. And so the question is, how can David speak to his own descendant, his own son, in such a way that he would call him Lord? He just asked the question, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? Look at verse 46. And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. He stumped them pretty good then, didn't he? Not only could they not answer that, they said, let's quit questioning him because he comes back at us with much harder questions that we cannot answer. But isn't there kind of a self-evident thing to this question immediately you'd say how is that the case somehow even though we we know that a descendant cannot be greater than his ancestor we are saying that David's descendant is greater than David David's saying it how can that be how do we wrestle with that the author of Hebrews is saying uh, he's not quoting this passage but it's in all of this argument around it. the biblical theology he will come to this passage by the way very shortly he says, "You wrestle it with this way. You recognize there's something unique about this king, this descendant. He is the son of God. He is God's son. He is divine. God in flesh, the rightful king of Israel. Start there. He is God in flesh." Now, again, if you want to learn more about that, the sermon's called "David's House Established: A Christmas Promise." You can take advantage of that. But that brings us to other point. And it's quick brings us to another text immediately. If this is the Davidic king who rules and reigns, there's another text we should immediately go to, even if it were not quoted to us. Even if the author of Hebrews didn't go there, which he does, we ought to immediately think of another text. And partly that's because we were just there. Psalm 2. When we spoke about Jesus being the heir of all things, the heir of all things, we said, this is definitely Referring back to Psalm 2, where it says that when the son, this king, asks, he'll be granted all the nations as an inheritance. Now that is glorious. Even an expansion of the promise we just read in 2 Samuel 7. An expansion of it. Why? Because there he's promised the throne of David. That's a kingdom. Here he's promised dominion and authority over all the nations. So again, the picture's getting larger and more grand. And in fact, the author of Hebrews basically says he's the heir of everything. He takes it even beyond this. All things are his. All things are his. Jesus, the greater son of David, is the one in view here. Again, the Jews recognize that immediately. This is a promise of the Messiah. In fact, this, as we said when we first looked at it, is a coronation psalm. They would they, when they did the coronations of the kings, they would read these psalms. And so again, this is very much in keeping with the idea that the Messiah is coming and God is going to work powerfully through Him. Now, if you have your Bibles, turn very quickly to Psalm 2. We looked at it a few weeks ago. I won't spend too much time here, but there's something we have to say very importantly about this. You'll remember uh, this text is quoted in Acts when... They recognize that this is about Christ because, uh, you know, when, the, when there's persecution against the church, I think it's Acts chapter 4, he says, why do the nations rage? They quote this passage. They say this is just the fulfillment of what the Word of God says. Why do the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel against, together against the Lord and His anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Now what is the reaction of God? He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. It's just humorous. It's folly. These kings think they can stand against God. The power of God is staggering. Staggering. He just laughs at them. He holds them in derision. He will speak to them in wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. And here's what he says. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill in Zion. Now here it comes. I will declare the decree... The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, and the ends of the earth for your possession. Now we could go on to read. There's much said there. We looked at it a few weeks ago, but when we looked at it a couple weeks ago, we were looking at that specific uh, promise of an inheritance of the nations. When Christ asked for those, they'll be given to him. But it's not just kingship that unites this passage with 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's not just kingship. That's certainly there, isn't it? Kingship is in both. It unites them. And the author of Hebrews wants you to notice that. But there's another theme that unites them, and that is sonship. Sonship unites them. In the one sense, the messianic son of David, who God says, He is my son. He shall be my son. I'll be a father unto him. He shall be a son unto me. That is the relationship. But there's something more said in this text. The Lord has said to me, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Now this language of begotten, very difficult. Okay, very difficult. Because again in theology, you've got to say Christ is not created. He is equally authoritative and glorious as the Father. All that we've established through this journey. But... There is a word that's given to us over and over, begotten, monogenes, monogenes, begotten. And this is a difficult word to wrestle with. And we're going to be very careful here as we speak about these things. Because again, you can go to John chapter 1. I didn't mark these places, you know them. But again, Christ is referred to there as the begotten Son of God. John chapter 3. I think verse 18, again, begotten is used. It's a word used often, begotten. And so this has led to theologians wrestling within, first of all, when was he begotten? What does this mean? And what does it mean to be begotten in in the case of the second person of the divine trinity? And my friends, we have to be careful. We have to be very careful with this because people wrestle with this wrongly and it's been the grounds of heresy for 2,000 years some of the earliest battles in the church, the reason we had so many church councils early in the church were often over these very issues. Because you had teachers like Arius, maybe you've heard of the Arian heresy, that came along and said, well, this clearly is saying that Jesus in some way comes from God and therefore is created. He's a lesser God. That is absolutely false. We've tried to put up those fences that however we reconcile this text, we know that is not the right answer. Kind of like Paul says, whatever the answer is in Romans chapter 9, it is not that God's word failed to stand. So we've got to start here. Whatever the answer is here, it is not that Christ is not fully God. Okay? And in and of Himself fully God. That's important to say. But there is some way in which He can say this as well. That He is begotten of the Father. Now, some people try to come at this a very easy way of saying it, which is to say this is simply referring to the Incarnation. But it doesn't seem it's used that way in John's Gospel. And it doesn't seem that the theologians thought that's how it was used. In fact, uh, if you want to stand on Athanasius and those early church creeds that we today as Christians also uphold, in fact, they are the foundation. In fact, uh, talking about all this nonsense going on in the church today, there was a, I saw a clip the other day, of a preacher a couple of weeks ago that says we need to throw away our confessions like the London Baptist Confession, Westminster Confession, because they were written by white European males. You know, so they're not worthy anymore because uh, they don't have a multicultural and all this sort of thing. Just crazy how unwise we are today. But they said those things have no input from Africa, no input from... Like, are you kidding? Where do you think those creeds came from? Those early creeds that formed the basis of what we held all along through church history, came from North Africa, came from the Near East, they came from all sorts of places other than Europe. I'll try to restrain myself here. <laughs> These things get me really fired up. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Again, Athanasius answered this in the 4th century. And I saw a... Uh, a professor from Midwestern, not too long ago, say, uh, "Can you imagine, with as little as we know about the the doctrine of the incarnation, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of all these various things, how to understand Christ? These men in the three hundreds gave their life to making these definitions, to battling about this, to arguing it, to to sing, uh, well." What about this? And somebody says, No, that can't be right. Here's why. They sat there and hammered these out over a hundred years. Can you imagine? And by the way, thank goodness they did. It's what allowed us to know get rid of Arianism, right? That was a, by the way, Arianism was a major power in the church at one point. It wasn't in the church, but I mean, it was putting the church in danger. It was a false doctrine. But again, thank goodness you had these men that stood and worked and and discerned and read the scriptures and put this together and said, no, Christ is not created. He is the only begotten Son. And they came up with with, uh, these points of doctrines like eternal generation and all these things that are just so hard to grasp. So hard to grasp. But this professor from Midwestern Baptist said, can you imagine if you told Athanasius, you're wasting your time. Christians will not care. 1,600 years from now, 1,700 years from now, nobody's going to care. They're not going to care if we're precise about it. They're not going to care if we understand it. We're just going to say it doesn't matter. These men gave their lives in service to God, getting us wisdom and discernment on these things that we would just be able to read it. We don't have to devote 70 years to figuring out. They figured it out for us. Why do we care about these confessions? Why do we read these catechisms? Are they the Word of God? not directly the Word of God, but these are men who wrestled with the Word of God, came together, compiled the wisdom of the Word of God that we might read it easily and understand it, memorize it as children, have a place to turn if we go, what does this mean? Well, get out the confession. What does it say? What does it say? The creeds were there to safeguard the faith. Safeguard the faith. We shouldn't throw them away. And they tell us, that Christ is the only begotten Son of the Father. The only begotten Son of the Father. Now, my friends, I have wrestled with this. I have wrestled with how to explain what that means, how to understand it, how to put it into words. And every time, I'm sure that it's not good. Like Every time I I try to put it into words, I go, nope, nope. It's like the examples we give the Trinity, right? i will say, well, it's like this. The Trinity is like this. And almost every one of them will lead you into heretical thinking because they're not right. There is nothing really that can lead you to understand the Trinity. Not fully. You have to recognize that it must be true biblically, but it's not easy to wrap our minds around. Three persons, one God. Distinguishable, but not dividable. We could go on and on. I read last night, Spurgeon... And he said this, and I thought, this is wise advice. Speaking of this very thing, he said, Let us not attempt to violate the sanctity by intrusive prying into the secrets of the eternal God. The things that are revealed are enough without venturing into vain speculations. In attempting to define the Trinity or unveil unveil the essence of divinity, many have lost themselves. Here great ships have founded. What have we to do in such a sea? with our frail skiffs. There's a point at which we have to go. God has revealed this much. It's for us and our children forever. He's not revealed more. There are things that belong to Him. He chose not to reveal unto us. And probably because we wouldn't have understood them if He did. Christ, the only begotten, eternally generated from the Father, yet equal to the Father, eternal. These things are difficult, but we've got to try to get them right. Because we're speaking of important things. I want to close by saying this. What the author of Hebrews is telling us is, this King, this glorious King is the Son of God. There are none like Him. He is unique, one of a kind, the begotten Son of God, the only begotten Son of God. Recognize that our only hope is in Him. Amen.